Welcome to CVAR, a COVID vaccine adverse reaction podcast where vaccine injured share resources and hope without censorship. Each brave guest provide insight into their journey. This podcast does not replace any medical or legal advice. Now, let's welcome your host author, Bon Galt and her guest. Welcome to CVAR, a COVID vaccine adverse reactions podcast. I'm your host, Vaughn Galt, and today we talk to respiratory therapist Amy Powell about her adverse reactions after taking the COVID-19 mRNA vaccine and what we can learn from her personal testimony. So with that, Amy, welcome to CIVAR. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for taking the invitation. It's it's really a lot of bravery to come out at this time and speak your truth, tell your story so that other people can um, learn from it and just kind of get early insight and wisdom if they're going through some of the similar symptoms. If not, um, somebody that they know may be going through it so they can go, oh, I watched that on an episode of CVAR and this is what I learned. So, But not everybody who gets the inoculation for COVID are going to have these symptoms. So. Um, it's more informational. And at this time, it's it's very highly censored. I mean, my show for CVAR is censored up the wazoo. So, so, uh, so but I get the information out um, through many, many different other channels that aren't like mainstream. So they're still being seen all over the world. So before we get into your adversity reactions, can you tell us what was your life like before you got the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, I was super high energy. People usually called me the road runner because I used to run laps around people at work. I was a respiratory therapist working in the surgical trauma and neuro ICUs. Um, I loved traveling with my husband, camping, hiking was one of my favorites. I love to sing. I love to dance. I love going to festivals. Um, I have not been able to do any of those things since I got sick about eight months ago. Um, so it's a lot of things in my life have changed drastically. Yeah. And so as a res- respiratory therapist, um, you worked during the pandemic. So what did you witness regarding COVID cases and treatment protocols for people who got admit- admitted for COVID in your hospital? Um, primarily, especially from my point of view as an RT, we treated the symptoms and that would include oxygen therapy, high flow oxygen therapy, non-invasive ventilation therapies such as CPAP and BiPAP. Uh, so we treated the symptoms, respiratory distress, low blood oxygen levels, high CO2 levels, and tried to optimize the patient's lungs as much as possible. Of course, sometimes it would progress to intubation. We were an uh, integral part of that process. And we also participated in something popular called proning, where we would flip the patient on their stomach, and that would help to open up the dorsal, like the back regions of the lungs to help with lung expansion and improvement in ventilation and oxygenation. So 
basically from our standpoint, we were treating the patient's symptoms as they struggled to breathe more. And that varied with different patients and you know how sick they got and how much that they struggled. Uh, here in Central Virginia, we, we were kind of delayed on our peak of COVID patients, but once we did, you know, see our peak, you know, we did we did have a high influx of COVID patients, and we had to dedicate a whole ICU just for those COVID patients. Uh, but luckily, because of the area that we live in, we didn't experience nearly the devastation such as New York and California and places like that. Mm. You know, um, I, I live in the city, I live in Everett, Washington, and I live in the city where the first supposed COVID case had came through in the United States. And um, it wasn't this massive influx of cases, and it has not been a massive influx of cases throughout the whole state of Washington, even in the town or the city where the first case came through. So, um, so for for you in in a similar area where you didn't have mass cases um when you got the cases and this is for people who who get covid because a lot of it is about breathing uh what are some of the recommendations that you say that people should do when when you were do, working with them you say flip them over so they can be on their stomach i mean what are yeah. some of the things that they could do if they if they get covid so they can breathe better well, um, I mean, basically, you know, you want to, if you're able to, I mean, obviously, if you're having struggle, if, if you're struggling to breathe, you know, you, you want to go to the hospital, of course, and to get oxygen therapy or to, uh, I know they were doing the monoclonal antibodies for a lot of people that were high risk and, you know, um, when they first got COVID. Uh, but basically, you know, you want to do what you can to expand your lungs move around, you know, it's important to cough and expectorate so secretions don't sit down in your lungs and put you at a higher risk of pneumonia. Um, but yeah, lying on your stomach was a really big part of being able to breathe better because mm. of your anatomy and because of areas of your lung that were able to expand um, and open up the alveoli, your air sacs, so you could, you know, have and maintain better oxygenation. And so I know that we were encouraging people at home to try to, you know, take deep breaths, do deep mm. breathing exercises, try to move around and move the junk around in your lungs so you can cough it up um, and, and to lie on your stomach so you could, you know, you could expand your lungs better and breathe better. Um, and even, uh, people, we were telling people, you know, if you are having a little bit of trouble or you are feeling breathless, you know, to try to like sit upright. Um, if you're not lying down on your belly, you know, to try to sit upright so you can try to expand your lungs to the best of your ability. Um, but those are really the only things that you can do as far, you know, unless you need to go to the hospital. Um, you know, of course, if you're deficient in vitamin C and vitamin D, you know, things of that nature, you, sh you should be taking supplements and whatnot. But for the most part, it's just about positioning, you know, and allowing for your lungs to expand better so you can breathe better. And so some people by doing those things were able to stay out of the hospital. Okay. And is there, um, is there, an, is there anybody, anything else that they could do at home to kind of miti mitigate um, an accelerated, uh, you know, buildup of pneumonia? Like, is there any kind of over-the-counters that they can take at home that, um, that you guys authorized? Not that I know of that was specifically authorized to take at home. Um, you know, especially in the beginning of all of this, there wasn't really a whole lot that they were recommending at all. 
You know, mm. it was just basically stay at home, try to get through it. And if you're having trouble breathing, then to come into the hospital and get oxygen or maybe steroids, you know, something like that to try to reduce inflammation. Uh, but there wasn't a whole lot of recommendations on telling people what to take at home. I know a lot of people were doing different things like taking in extra vitamin C, taking in extra vitamin D, zinc, you know, things like that to, um, you know, to try to boost their immune system so the disease didn't progress. Um, but there wasn't a whole, whole lot, you know, that they were actually recommending or telling medical professionals to recommend for people at home. Right. You know, I, I had a, I have a question about that, um, that I haven't asked any of the doctors or the nurses or the the patients that um, I spoke to yet. But when it comes to like the flu or the cold, um, you know, doctors and, and nurses would recommend try over the counter, try, you know, they'll have a certain regimen. But when it came to COVID, there's absolutely nothing that's being um, recommended from the medical profession. What is the difference? Why, why, why is there absolutely nothing besides wait until you get so sick that you basically can barely walk and then come to the hospital and we'll, we'll do some um, hospital protocols on you for COVID. But until then, don't do anything. Just wait till you get really sick. I mean, what, why, why is that the, I mean, did, did you find that I unusual at the time? I mean, it's I still, the, it, I, I did find it a little unusual. I mean, there, I felt like there wasn't a whole lot more you could do for COVID versus something like the flu. I mean, there's like decongestants and mm -hmm. decongestants and mucolytics, for example, that can help thin out the mucus, make it easier to cough up, uh, fever reducing medications. So if your fever did get a little too high, um, you know, take Tylenol and, you know, but honestly, I mean, besides for those, you know, specific therapies, those over-the-counter regimens that people did for the flu, um, there wasn't anything extra, you know, recommended from a COVID point of view at all. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then, so, I mean, and that really hasn't changed um, in terms of the, what the hospital advises people who test positive or get um, COVID, the, the, the protocol is still the same. Wait until, don't do anything. And if you get really, really sickly, then just come to the hospital and we'll, we'll administer our protocols. So um, what were the hospital protocols that you guys did at that time that you were working? Um, what did you witness? So basically, I did not work a lot with the COVID patients. I would respond to some COVID emergencies as a float or in the emergency department, um, but primarily I stayed in my general service area. At the time, I was a primary caregiver of my grandmother and my disabled father. They were both considered high risk for COVID, and so my, I think my colleagues knew that, and so they kind of bumped me out of the float pool, and so I did not spend any time in the COVID ICU. Um, but as far as I know, um, you know, besides for steroids to reduce inflammation and the new antiviral drug remdesivir, um, I'm not really sure when they initiated and who, which patients they decided to initiate the remdesivir on. I assume that it was the more severe population of patients. Um, but, uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot that I had heard circulating around the hospital as far as you know, what they were doing to treat it besides for the symptoms. Um, you know, so obviously if you're having trouble breathing, we would, you know, the respiratory therapist would give you devices to help to optimize your breathing and help take that, that breathing load off of you. Um, 
oxygen therapy, of course, and we did different techniques and different therapies to help patients clear their lungs so we could mm -hmm. optimize their breathing. Um, but, you know, and then of course, if they went into things such as kidney failure, they would start dialysis, you know, all of the normal things. Um, but there wasn't really much circulating as far as early intervention. Um, besides for going to the clinic and getting monoclonal antibodies before you get sicker and end up in the mm -hmm. hospital, there was nothing circulating that they were telling us that would be helpful, you know, to tell these patients. It was basically like, you know, hopefully you'll get through it. Hopefully this doesn't progress to double pneumonia. Hopefully you don't end up on a ventilator. Uh, and, you know, from, so from my experience, if I got paged to a COVID emergency for a patient that was having trouble breathing, my main goal was to check their oxygen and CO2 levels, check their mental status, see what, you know, the level of therapy that they needed um, as far as breathing assistance, and then recommend that to the doctors. Right. And, and when, when you guys were giving them either steroids or remdesivir and ventilating them, if they were a serious case in the hospital, um, what was the survivability rate? Did you have a, did you notice a percentage of certain numbers coming out surviving? Um, I'm not sure of the exact percentage, but I do it's know pretty that high. Yeah, I mean, in comparison to other hospitals, our survival rate was pretty high, but, you know, mm. obviously we did experience, um, you know, deaths, of course, and from my experience as well, and from hearing the other therapist perspectives, you know, there was, it was a lot of patients with that had a lot of comorbidities, you know, so older patients, obese patients, hypertension, diabetes, you know, mm -hmm. patients that were already struggling with a lot of other underlying health issues. Of course, there were also, you know, there were always going to be the few young, healthy patients that are unfortunate. And you're going to see that with any viral illness, you mm -hmm. know, like the flu. Um, we always would have, you know, a handful of young, healthy people that it just ended up in a very unfortunate situation and would you know, might not survive as well. Um, but for the most part, our survival rate was pretty high. Um, and again, you know, we did, I mean, for our hospital, you know, we did see the peak and we did see an influx of patients come through, uh, but it was never anything that was devastating to the hospital. In fact, you know, staffing was probably more of a primary issue than the amount of COVID patients that we actually mm. had. Hmm. Yeah. See, and I, I really wanted to have people understand from a RT or a nurse or a healthcare professional, the, the, the pathway um, that got you to your, your current injury that you're living with, because um, there's this misconception that if you're vax injured, that you are uneducated, you don't know a lot about medicine, and you just basically are making a lot of this stuff stuff up, um, you, you know, all, all these different things. And only people who are super educated, who know a lot about medicine, who work in the medical profession, um, and know a lot about COVID and treating COVID, all these different qualifiers are um, the ones who are credible enough to talk about um, the vaccines and its safety and efficacy. So um, coming from your background, you seem to have much credibility to be able to talk about the safety and efficacy of the COVID vaccine. Now, um, coming into your experience, 
did you watch any other news, major news sources or get information from your hospital about any other kinds of um, cheap and successful treatments to COVID other than getting the inoculation? I mean, where did you get your news about the, the vaccine safety? Uh, the vaccine safety, so I work for a large medical institution, and so they sent us articles through our emails, you know, talking about the 96% efficacy of the vaccines and, you know, how the trials have proven them to be safe and effective and would stop transmission, um, prevent, you know, severe disease, um, and how it would also most likely prevent transmission even with future circulating variants and all of the variants to come over the years. And so they sent us all of this data in the beginning, which we have actually learned that a lot of, you know, a lot of what they said initially did not turn out to be the case with the new variants. Um, so they, you know, our medical institution gave us a lot of this education. Um, and I mean, I read a lot of research through the NIH and American Medical Association and Hopkins and just, you know, different, you know, peer reviewed research um, that I'm used to reading. And I just graduated with my bachelor's in public health back in 2020 as well. And so part of my degree program with that particular degree was learning how to research and learning data interpretation. Um, and so again, in the beginning, you know, I basically knew what all of the medical data was showing at that time and what our medical institution provided from us from all of the different health agencies. And it's interesting that you mentioned about, you know, the credibility of the doctors because, you know, and the scientists and the virologists, because they've definitely earned that credibility. Um, however, when it comes to adverse reactions, nobody really knows, you know, I mean, the doctors, the scientists, you know, they're, they're just kind of like, we don't really know. We need more research. We need more data. We're not sure. And they don't know how to treat the vaccine injuries. And so that was, that was a rude awakening. You know, it's, they have all this data and they have all this knowledge, but if you walk into a hospital or a doctor's office with symptoms, you know, of an adverse vaccine reaction, everybody just looked like a deer in headlights for the most part, no matter what degree or background that they specialized in. Well, let me ask you this: as as um, as familiar you are with um, looking at the, the the medical research and the papers and all of that, and um, to be honest with you, you're one of the very few healthcare professionals that I've spoken to regarding this subject who actually had the time and energy to do even more research on their own um, and, and read different medical. Um, papers aside from what's coming through on their corporate um, hospital, you know, email or newsletter, what's coming through um, like CNN or, you know, your local uh, news stations, all these mainstream um, pathways. Of all of that, did you ever come across the actual clinical trials paperwork to read that material on, on what happened with the COVID vaccine? Uh, I did. I did. I went back and I did actually review the trials. And, you know, of course, it was randomized control trial, which is the gold standard of research. So the trials were conducted correctly. They had it split right down the middle, you know, with about 21,000 vaccine, 21,000 placebo uh, patients. And as far as there was a lot of uh, it varied a lot in race. 
Um, but as far as male and female, um, it was pretty much divided right down the middle. Um, and of course, you know, with those trials, these people were vetted, they were all healthy, they, you know, there was a lot of exclusion criteria. And so, you know, pregnant women, um, autoimmune patients, that was a really big one, because I mean, in the beginning of all of this, and when they were, you know, really pushing the vaccines, there was zero data on autoimmune patients and how they might respond, you know, to this vaccine. And so there were still, you know, a lot of questions there. And um, there were also some questions about some of the adverse reactions that were reported during the trial. They had, um, it was like a hundred and something nervous system disorders that were reported, but only a small portion of those were reported. They had it split up as headache because that would be a, um, a neurological symptom, like a nervous system symptom. But the other category, you know, with the, with the other reactions reported from the nervous system reactions, there was, that wasn't broken down very well at all. And the CDC was even called out on that. And there was a letter submitted to them from, I believe it was a senator in Wisconsin. Um, and, you know, he asked them, he was like, can you be more specific on what these symptoms were? Um, because neurological symptoms, there's just a vast array of different neurosymptoms, they manifest differently in people, um, and they never answered that question. And mm. so there was still, you know, there was still some vagueness there. Um, and then, of course, you know, once, you know, I like, uh, well, it was probably, yeah, I guess it was, I'm trying to remember the timeline now, because this is, I, it's been almost eight months since I got the vaccine and got sick. Um, but there were questions, you know, leading up to around the time I got vaccinated to after I got vaccinated, as far as, you know, was this actually a one size fits all situation? You know, if you had a COVID infection prior, do you need two doses within three weeks of one another? Do you actually, you know, need all of that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the new data started emerging. There was, I know, um, Penn Medicine put out an article last April that, that, you know, they did a study and it specifically said if you had a prior COVID infection, you know, one dose was all you needed to produce a robust immune response. And the second dose was actually shown to produce not much more of an immune response, yet they were still pushing three weeks apart, two doses for everyone. And there were new studies coming out showing, you know, a lot of these people that already had prior immunity only needed one dose, if that, you know, but yeah. there was just a lot of conflicting data. There was you know, one thing I noticed in my hospital was, you know, of course, when I went into healthcare, I agreed to take all of the normal vaccines that I'd already had, for example. And, you know, before, like, for example, with my MMR booster, they, they gave me the opportunity to do a blood test to see if I had antibody response and antibody levels. And if I did, then I wouldn't have to take the booster. Mm -hmm. But with COVID, there was no option for that. You, you know, they said that it, it didn't matter whether you could prove immunity you still had to get both doses of the vaccine. And, you know, now data showing that it's better to wait longer, longer intervals before you take the second dose. And so again, what we're currently doing and what the new data is showing and emerging now, it's, it's, it's not aligning. It's not aligning right. very well. Right. Yeah. I, I, that, that what, what I um, have come to understand in many of these interviews with different people, it, 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 it matters the information that you are um, 
coming into contact and that you vet and that you look at. And I don't know if it's a matter of manifest destiny or if it's just a matter of good research, but for some reason, some people come across certain information uh, from the same organizations and from others that are much more insightful around these adverse reactions as compared to others. Um, I came across the clinical trials with the animal trials and read those. And I came across the um, the report that was given to the CDC, or I'm sorry, the FDA um, in November of 2020 that they had used to approve. And from looking at that data, it was like, mm, this shouldn't have been approved because there's still a lot. The time frame for evaluation is too short. A couple months is not enough to evaluate long-term adverse reactions. Same thing goes with the human trials. A couple months, is that enough time to evaluate efficacy and long-term safety is a couple months and it, it was the same exact thing so um so these are questions you know if you're going to roll out something on a massive scale for the population um it should be longer than a couple months Absolutely. Or, or at least give people options so that if they're going if they're going to take something that's going to have risk that they can they can uh, look at other options um, as well and then pick and choose and then own up to the risk that they took. Right. And I think that's where the three week, you know, interval came from initially where newer data showing that you should wait longer in between those two doses. You know, they were rushing. I mean, the trial we were, they were an emergency pandemic. They had to roll it out, you know, really quickly. And according to them, you know, it had to be that three weeks and that's what they were sticking by. But that was one of the questions that I had in the beginning too. I was just like, you know, this was really fast. Like, where did the three weeks come from? You know, and I think that was just something that they came up with. Okay, this is long enough, you know, to test the immune response from the first dose and kind of give your body a little more, a little time to get used to it before we give you the second dose. Um, but again, it was, it rolled out really, really fast. And, you know, they just kept saying, we've been studying this technology for years and years and years. And I understand that, but this was the first time in history they were going to be rolling out this technology to mass millions of humans all at one time. Um, and even, you know, another issue that I found um, just from dealing with the vaccine injured community is that it seems to be a lot of young women and young people in general that are experiencing more higher rates of adverse reactions. And it's interesting because the young healthy people are the ones that are at the lowest risk you know, of getting severe disease from COVID, yet they're saying that this is one size fits all, everybody has to get this. And, you know, they told us in the beginning that we wouldn't transmit it if we got vaccinated, but we now know that that is not the case. You can be fully vaxxed and boosted and you can still transmit the virus. And the new Pfizer data also reflected um, with the FDA just rolled out, it reflected how many more thousands of reactions were reported amongst young women between ages 30 and 50 that had prior COVID infection. And it's very interesting and they can't answer those questions. I mean, uh, American Medical Association put out an article that stated, we don't know the variables surrounding you know, what is making people more high risk to have an adverse reaction? And without those answers, you know, to keep pushing this as hard, knowing now that everyone can transmit it is just very disappointing. You know, I mean, this hasn't been out long enough. You know, I mean, it, it peer reviewed studies and research data collection does not happen overnight. It takes a long time. 
you know, and then I remember reading a study back in 2018 about mRNA technology mm-hmm. and how they specifically said from the animal trials, how they were concerned about cardiac reactions, inflam- severe inflammatory response reactions and things of that nature, you know, but that seemed to be ignored, you know, in when they rolled out these vaccines and said that they were practically safe for everyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I definitely hear you. And I have been reading the um, mRNA vaccine clinical trials data for the animal studies for years now, and they have not um, gotten over the issue of how um, a lot of the adverse, a lot of the medicine, whatever the medicine is, it congregates where the, most of the blood is pumping into, which is organs and female um, anatomy, basically where the big organs that get most pumping blood go through in the, in the trials of, of, of many of the research from around the world, from different institutions and, and universities, they couldn't get over that where it would just congregate to where most of the, um, the blood vessels were, were going to be pumping into those organs. And it did, even in the animal ones, it did affect mostly the female rats as compared to the male rats. And um, in the female rats, um, it congregated around um, organs. So um, so more to come on, on that research, but I always advise everybody to look at the scholarly um, research on not just the NIH website, but also um, click on those links and go to other universal research throughout the world because many of them work with each other and they, they fund much of each other's work because they kind of co- co- cooperate with one another. And you'll see that the same research is being done multiple universities all around the world. And when you read 5, 10, 15 of the same kind of stuff, you get a big picture story of, oh, this is where they're going with that. Um, so, uh, Aside, aside from that, so that's been established. You, you tried your best to do your due diligence. Nobody's judging you for that. Um, but in January 2021, you were unhappy that you about your COVID vaccination being rescheduled because shortly afterwards you got a tough case of COVID. So what's what's that like? You know, being somebody who was working with and, and with patients, knowing all this information that you had gotten about the vaccines and inoculation, um, and then getting COVID and not getting inoculated. So tell us about that experience. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, it was very interesting. So I was actually pretty excited about the vaccines rolling out at first. Uh, however, I was. I did experience hesitancy in the beginning. I was a little skittish and nervous about it just from some of the research I'd read about mRNA technology prior that was outside of the documents that were sent to us via email at work. Um, And even my colleagues were equally, you know, a little hesitant at first. And I think that was a normal reaction amongst a lot of people. So I just thought it was just kind of normal anxiety around something that was so new to people. Um, However, so it was right when the vaccines rolled out. So it was towards the end of December. I want to say around December the 18th is when they first started administering the vaccines at my hospital. I was selected amongst the very first group of people to be eligible to receive one because I was a respiratory therapist. And um, so my exposure rate was super high. Uh, But when they rolled them out, 
I immediately was like, huh, you know, and I didn't really know where that hesitancy was coming from. Again, I thought maybe just normal anxiety, but I went to schedule my vaccine and I, the first available day that I could do it was December the 23rd. And I thought, well, then I'm going to get this immune response. And they said that, you know, if you had prior COVID infection, typically your first dose is when you get the more systemic response, uh, immune response. So I didn't want to be sick for Christmas, basically. And so my second dose on top of that, so if I'd gotten it on the 23rd, my second dose was going to fall on a date where I had to work the next two days. And again, they had said, you know, expect for an immune response that might make you sick. And we encourage that you are off a day or two after your second dose and well, first and second dose, really. And so I thought about it and I was like, you know what, this just doesn't work with my schedule. So I'm just going to wait until after Christmas. And then ironically, I ended up testing positive for COVID on the 23rd of December, which was the same day that I initially looked into getting the first vaccine. Um, so I was very disappointed because I'm like, of course, they roll the vaccines out and then I get COVID, you know, pretty much within the week. Um, but you know, I had a pretty mild case. However, it was the strangest illness that I've ever had because it just, the symptoms came in waves. Um, my first symptom was a raging headache and mm. I didn't know I had COVID at first, but I had this headache for 24 hours. The only thing in my health history prior to getting sick from this is migraines, but it wasn't mm. a normal migraine where it's localized to one area of my head. It was like this full blown you know, crazy headache that no amount of medication could take care of. And mm -hmm. then I lost my taste and smell. Then I spiked a fever and I was very fatigued. And so that's when I was suspicious. You know, I was like, I probably have COVID and I went and got tested and I was positive. Um, and then when my fever went away, I thought I was getting better. And then I got hit with GI symptoms. Um, Luckily, I what is GI for people who so, don't know? So gastrointestinal. So basically like a like a stomach virus type of symptoms. Uh, I was not vomiting, but I had really, really bad abdominal pain mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and the other symptoms that you get besides for vomiting. Um, and so that went on for like four days and it was very uncomfortable. And then once that subsided, then my fever came back again. And I just remember thinking like, this is, you know, like yeah, the second, the second week, the second week, yeah, you got the worst. The so week, the first, yeah. so the first week for you, just to summarize for people, because I can see people getting really good information if they got COVID and then again, good information if they have an adverse reaction. So, you know, kind of hitting both spectrums. But so the first week was pretty mild. And, but the second week you start getting hit with these, uh, more severe COVID symptoms. It was, yeah. I mean, my fever came back and I was just extremely tired. And, you know, honestly, I think the headache in the beginning was, was probably one of the worst symptoms that I had, but again, it mm. just lasted a day. I had like a mild sore throat, but it never went down into my lungs any further than that. So I never had any issues with breathing or anything. It was just a lot of fatigue, a lot of abdominal pain, um, just generally feeling very unwell. Mm. And, you know, when I kept getting hit with these waves of symptoms, I was just, I was a little nervous because I was unsure, you know, uh, like how much it was going to progress or if I was going to progress even more, you know, because they say around day 10 is typically when people, you know, tip if they're going to. Um, so for the first 10 days, I just, my symptoms were just coming and going in waves and I, I just wasn't sure what was going to happen, but it was the first virus I've ever had that when my fever went away for days, 
you know, it ended up coming back and that's never happened to me before. I mean, I mm -hmm. probably the sickest I've ever been was when I got the flu when I was young, because it actually did progress to pneumonia. Um, but I still was technically sicker a little longer with COVID because the symptoms just, you know, wouldn't quite go away. Um, but once I got through that second wave of fevers, um, I never had a high fever. So that was good. I think the highest my fever got was like 101.8. Um, I did, I was, I started to, you know, feel a little better. And, but it was, it was two weeks, you know, of where, when I thought I was getting better, I got hit with a new, another symptom, whether it was mm -hmm. a new symptom or another symptom coming back. And so it was, it did make me, you know, nervous. Um, however, I did not have any respiratory symptoms. And that was the most important thing for me, you know, and for everybody really is to, you know, be able to breathe. And if you're having trouble breathing, that's when you know it's, it's in your lungs and it never went down to my lungs, but it was definitely the strangest viral illness that I've ever experienced where you could not predict and nail down the symptoms, you know? Mm. Mm -hmm. Typically, you know, like with the flu, you know, you get hit and, you know, once you start feeling better, you're getting better, you know, with COVID, it was kind of like a little bit of a roller coaster. And so it did make me nervous. Yeah, I've, I have definitely heard, heard much of the same experience from many people who had gotten COVID naturally. So at the time you thought that you could have prevented COVID if you got vaccinated sooner. Okay. And you even told others to get vaccinated because they don't want this completely understandable, completely understandable from the perspective that you had come from at the time. Now, fast forward in July of 2021, you finally got around to getting your first Pfizer shot. And then you started having adverse reactions within 24 hours of getting inoculated. Can you please explain the symptoms that, that started coming through? Yes. Um, so the reason, one of the main reasons I waited to get vaccinated was because I did have naturally occurring infection, uh, infection. And so I had that natural immunity and my employee health at my job actually recommended that as soon as my symptoms subsided and I returned to work, that I get vaccinated. However, that just didn't make sense to me because I had just had COVID. I didn't want another immune response. I'd just been sick for two weeks. I didn't want to go through even one or two days of being sick again. Um, and I was counting on my natural immunity. And, you know, that also gave me more time for more data to roll out. And so I waited until July. So there was about a seven and a half month interval there where um, I was fine. I didn't have any residual symptoms from COVID. Um, I had recovered completely once I returned to work. And as soon as I was inoculated, um, it was, it's very, very hard to describe the feeling that I had, but I always had a super sore arm with flu shot. I always felt the needle go in. It was always painful. And with the COVID inoculation, it was very different. I didn't even feel the needle go in. It was almost like I kind of like checked out for several seconds and I felt like a fuse blew in my body. It was, it's very hard to describe, but it was very transient. So after several seconds, you know, the nurse asked me if I was okay. And I was like, yeah. And I thought I was fine, but I knew it was not normal. So 24 hours later, I was having dinner with my husband and I noticed that my heart just started racing. Just it, my heart rate just spiked when I was sitting there. And I remember putting my hand on my chest, like, and my husband was like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I think so. My heart rate's just up. I said, that's weird. 
And I kind of just joked with him and played it off, you know, and I was like, oh, it's just the vaccine working, you know, um, and it settled down. And so I went to bed and the next day my symptoms continued to escalate. So about 36 hours later, I was having hot flashes. I was having profuse sweating. I've never sweated so much in my life, but I wasn't running a fever either, even though I felt like I was burning up. And I started getting dizzy, having blurry vision. Uh, my heart rate started to climb in the 130s, close to 140. And I knew that those symptoms were definitely outside of the normal immune response. And this was happening while I was at work. And so I had to leave work early because I could not go on any longer. And I came home and my heart rate spiked again. And so that's when I started getting really nervous. And I thought to myself, okay, maybe that initial thing that I felt in the clinic was not psychosomatic after all, there's something going on. Um, and so the next day after that, so 72 hours later, a lot of the neuro type symptoms had subsided, but my heart rate was still too high. Mm. Um, and so I decided to see my primary care provider and right before I went in to see him, because this was on the weekend, I got vaccinated on a Thursday, my symptoms were escalating through the weekend, Monday rolled around and that's when the, I had my first, uh, what I called an attack, where I felt just suddenly I felt sharp, excruciating chest pain, my heart rate started to spike and it was really fast and it went from, you know, normal heart rate or whatever it was to 160 really, really quickly. And my limbs, my hands and my feet started uh, to turn numb, got tingly. And it's, it, it felt like my fight or flight just cut on and I was just overwhelmed in this attack mode. And I didn't know what was happening in my body. I just knew that it was really scary and it was not normal. And I knew then that something something was seriously wrong. And this had to be an adverse reaction because I'd never experienced anything like that before in my life. Yeah. Okay. And so within about four or five days, that's when you had like the first quote, quote, heart attack type four symptom, four mm -hmm. days. Okay. Four days. And you, you only experienced it once or did you keep up, keep on getting these flare ups? So I kept getting these flare-ups. I was in and out of my doctor's office, cardiology clinic. They placed me on a Zyopatch monitor where they monitor your heart rhythm and rate for two weeks. Um, I didn't even make it through the 14 days of wearing that before I ended up in the emergency room. Um, they couldn't figure out what was going on. They ruled out myocarditis and the ER physician uh, initially told me, he said, I'm going to be honest with you. We've had an influx of patients coming in with unexplained tachycardia post mRNA vaccination, and their workups are inconclusive, and we're not sure what's going on. He said, you know, looking at your pretty much non-existent medical history here, and that, you know, you're young and healthy, I would think that this could be an adverse reaction to the vaccine, but I apologize that I just don't know what you know, I don't know what to tell you is going on. And, you know, so I went back to my primary care provider again. And I'm just like, I keep having these attacks where I'm just doing nothing. I'm just sitting there and suddenly I'm having trouble breathing. My heart rate's in the 160s. I can't feel my limbs. I'm having chest pain, you know. So that's when they started me on a metoprolol, a beta blocker, um, to try to bring my heart rates down. Um, and, you know, again, this was um, this was just intermittent where my heart rate was pretty much high all the time, higher than usual. 
but the attacks were just coming in spells and there was no rhyme or reason, you know, and I didn't know, they didn't know, nobody knew at first, you know, what was going on with me. Um, Amy, are you really active person? Do you exercise a lot? I mean, when these, I mean, what are you doing when these attacks happen? I mean, I know you say you, you're sitting there having dinner and one would happen, but do you notice a difference um, when you're, you know, kind of sedentary versus extremely active, like working out or playing sports or anything else? Well, your, your heart typically would be pumping more. I mean, does it make a difference for you? Um, so interestingly, uh, in the beginning of this, I noticed that my heart rate was only normal. It would only get back down to normal resting rates in the 60s and low 70s when I was lying flat at complete rest. Um, but the, the intermittent attacks were happening at rest or just walking around just doing casual activity. Um, so when the, all of this first started, I was actually minimizing my activity on purpose because my heart rates were pretty much over 100 on my feet at any given time, even if I wasn't exerting myself and that was not normal. And so I wasn't doing, you know, the normal things that I do, you know, and I'm not like a marathon runner, you know, like I usually don't go to the gym or anything like that, but I'm very active. I'm always doing something, you know, I'm never really sitting down. And so when all this started, it scared me and I was trying to minimize my activity as much as possible. But then I started noticing that these attacks were happening, would happen at rest as well. The very first attack I ever had was when I was sitting in the van with my husband after we had eaten lunch, you know, so I didn't, I was just basically scared to exert myself or push myself more than I needed to um, because I was, I didn't want my heart rate to keep going up. I didn't want to make it worse. And I was also having these large swings in my blood pressure where my blood pressure would drop when I was at rest. But when I was on my feet, my blood pressure was going up and I've never had high blood pressure before. And I noticed that in the doctor's offices, you know, they check my blood pressure and they're like, oh, you're hypertensive. And I'm like, yeah, that's really weird because I, I'm never hypertensive. You know, my blood pressure usually runs, you know, lower than normal. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I'm a very active person, um, but I was not doing any kind of extra exercise or strenuous activity once this started because it, it scared me to, you know, I just, I had no idea what was happening. I just knew my heart rate was too high and I was scared to make it go even higher. You know, um can you list the, the different medical tests that you had gone through and the different treatments that you have undergone so that people are familiar? Well, I tried that. I tried that. I haven't tried that. Uh, yeah. So um, in the beginning, they did a full blood work panel and they were checking things like my magnesium, um, total metabolic panel, my thyroid, because, um, you know, these, if these lab numbers weren't in the box, then that could also explain some of my symptoms. And so they did all of that. All of that came back normal. They did a chest x-ray that came back normal. They did multiple EKGs, um, which that mainly showed um, that I was tachycardic pretty much all the time. Unless um, one of my EKGs, the first EKG I did, I was lying flat in my doctor's office. And that was the only time I had a normal EKG. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't until my cardiac monitor came back that they realized that I was having um, a, a lot of different arrhythmias. Um, so I was having heart rates of 
you know, as high as 150s to 170s. And that was just doing normal things like walking. I wasn't running, I wasn't exerting myself, even at work, the few days that I was able to work before I completely went out. Um, I was, you know, like, my colleagues knew that I wasn't feeling well. So they were like, Oh, we'll transport this patient for you. So you don't have to push the ventilator, you know, to try to minimize, take some of the workload off of me. But once my monitor came back, they saw that I was having these really high rates, which was not normal. They saw that I was also having some rare bradycardia where my heart rate would drop down in the thirties. Uh, they saw that I was having uh, type one second degree heart block, uh, ventricular bigeminy, um, which is like where your heart's basically skipping beats. Um, and the most concerning was a 17 beat uh, run of non-sustained VTAC. VTAC is one of, um, it's one of the arrhythmias that can be fatal and cause you to go into cardiac arrest. And that type of arrhythmia is the arrhythmia when I see it on a monitor, you know, at work on a patient's monitor, I'm sprinting to their room because I know that they're about to go into cardiac arrest if they don't come out of it. And I went into that arrhythmia and so my heart rate was anywhere from 39 to 233 on my cardiac monitor. And so once those results came back, and they even actually had me send in my patch a couple days early because I was so symptomatic. They were like, we think we have what we need. Go ahead and send it back in so we can get the results back faster because you're just very symptomatic right now. And so once those results came back, my primary care provider, you know, he was extremely concerned, called cardiology, and they were able to see me within a few days. Um, and they, they scheduled an echocardiogram the first day I, I met my electrophysiologist. And so on day one, my EP electrophysiologist actually said to me, I'm going over your symptoms and after hearing your story and your timeline, He's like, unfortunately, it sounds like you could have a nervous system disorder, autonomic uh, dysfunction uh, called dysautonomia. There's different forms of that. He's like, but, you know, being that you've never had any heart history, you don't have any family heart history, and you've always been healthy, and you, your symptoms started 24 hours after your inoculation from the vaccine, he said, I'm highly suspicious that you have a nervous system disorder that is causing this stress on your heart, but we're gonna do an echo first. Unfortunately, the echo was scheduled two months out, and so I didn't make it two months before I had to be admitted to the hospital for ongoing tachycardia and chest pain, even on the beta blocker. And I kept having these attacks, and I had to call EMS to my house a couple of times, and they were trying to keep me out of the hospital because of the pandemic, because, of course, around the same time as when our hospital got hit uh, with a lot of COVID patients. And so EMS would just sit with me until my vitals got better, you know, when I was I was in a better position to, you know, to stay at home. Uh, but it escalated and cardiology said, you know what, we want you to go to the hospital and get admitted. We don't care, you know, what's going on in the hospital. You need, your workup needs to be faster. So once they admitted me, they just basically continuously monitored my vitals, my blood pressure, which showed that it was up, down, up, down. You know, at one point they, you know, they were saying, hold her medication. No, give her medication because my vitals were so labile, so all over the place, they weren't sure what to do. They did something called orthostatic testing where they give you fluid through an IV and they have you stand up to see what your blood pressure does once you stand. Um, because in most uh, autonomic dysfunction cases, when people stand, um, 
their blood pressure will actually drop too low. And that would be uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is one of the more common forms of dysautonomia. But for me, my blood pressure wasn't dropping, it was going up. And so again, they weren't really sure what form of dysautonomia I had, but once they monitored me and did more blood work and ruled out so many other things and then came in and talked to me about all of my symptoms, they were like, we are certain that you have autonomic nervous system dysfunction. Your echocardiogram is normal because they did that during my hospitalization. And so they were like, your heart is functioning fine. And we don't think we have to do any further invasive tests on you to determine that this is what's going on with you. And it was at that point that I knew, I pretty much knew once all of this started that I was having an adverse reaction to the vaccine, but it was just more so confirmed at this point with ruling out all these other things that could be causing my symptoms. And even the doctors telling me, there's nothing else to explain this except your vaccine inoculation. However, they were still very, very careful how they worded that. And they were still pretty hesitant to talk about it and to go into more detail about it. Okay, so, um, you know, so, so, the, so the medical doctors that were evaluating you um, for having autonomic cardiac dysfunction, um, and try there's there no any ways to address some of the symptoms. I mean, there's no treatment so options it, or anything for, that they gave you for that. So they basically increased mamotoprolol, and they told me to drink at least three liters of fluid a day and increase my salt intake. What that would do is um, basically hold more blood volume in my vessels and so make me less prone to fainting um, because I was having some pre-syncope where I was having dizziness and blurry vision and did feel like I was going to pass out um, on several occasions. But leading up to my hospitalization, those symptoms subsided some and my blood pressure was actually too high more than it was too low. And so that's the three liter of fluid and increased salt intake regimen is more so for the common form of POTS, which is the hypovolemic form. And it wasn't until January that I was um, officially diagnosed with intermittent adrenergic syndrome. And so that told me and my medical team that I probably have the less common form of POTS, which is the hyperadrenergic form. And that would explain all of these attacks, these fight or flight type of, of attacks that I was having. Um, and of course, increasing your fluid intake for any illness or just in general on a daily basis is going to be better for your body. Um, but the increased salt intake would be more so for hypovolemic POTS and not the type of POTS that I have. Um, because again, when I stand up, my blood pressure rises, it doesn't drop. And mm -hmm. so um, I kind of had, I kind of figured that out on my own. Um, and so I cut the extra salt intake out for my particular type of, of POTS, which is what they think I have. And they still haven't done some of the gold standard testing to officially 100% diagnose me with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. They're just calling it POTS-like um, dysautonomia with intermittent adrenergic attacks or syndrome. Um, okay. Yeah, so the only abnormal blood work that I had was, uh, it was called a metanephrine test where they test to see how much um, epinephrine, adrenaline 
is in your bloodstream and mine came back abnormal. That was the only abnormal blood work that I had. And something called uh, pheochromocytoma, a rare adrenal cancer would also explain that, but they've already ruled that out with urine testing. And so pretty sure I have hyperpots and they referred me to Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins can't see me until August of 2023. Um, and I made that appointment a few months ago. And so that's not really helpful. And now I've been referred by my neurologist to Mayo Clinic. And I just got an email today that there's a wait list and they would be in contact with me uh, when they're able to see me. And so God only knows when that's going to be. Mm, yeah. I, 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 so you're no longer working right now. Um, right. Okay. And, and so you're, 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 looking at all these different uh, things to assess and help you with the symptoms that you are experiencing. Did you, um, did you by any chance do a blood smear to see if there's any anomalies in your blood? It's interesting you ask that because I've been very curious to see what my blood might look like under a microscope. Um, I don't even think they checked like my clotting factors. Um, yeah, did so they do a D-dimer to see if there's deep vein clotting? Of all the... Of all the tests that you have done, I mean. Yeah, they didn't. That was not, I went back and looked at the several um, pages of lab work and different at different times that I had. And it didn't look, I, I couldn't find where they checked my D-dimer. Um, they deferred a brain MRI because I've already had a brain MRI, but it was also some years ago that I had a brain MRI. That was when I was first diagnosed with migraines. They just did one to make sure there was nothing um, that they could see and it was negative. Mm -hmm. My brain was fine. And they didn't think that it was warranted because I wasn't having any like cognitive or you know other symptoms that might trigger them to order one. Um, they didn't do a tilt table test, which would officially diagnose my POTS. They didn't do uh, sweat testing. Um, and one of my symptoms is either profuse sweating or no sweating at all. Some days I don't sweat. Some days I sweat way too much. Um, mm. And I have a lot of temperature regulation issues. Um, and so there, there are these tests that I know that they should have performed, you know, that they didn't. Um, there can you ask them, can you ask them, um, or do they have to recommend it? Like if there's a test that you want to take, would they, even if there's no reason, is, well, you would can you definitely. still be able to get them? Yes. And you can advocate for yourself and ask for some of this testing. Um, I didn't ask about the blood clot testing. Um, I was pretty overwhelmed, you know, in the beginning of all of this. And I wasn't really thinking about blood clots at first. It wasn't until kind of later on after I'd done more research that I was, um, it just kind of crossed my mind. Like, I wonder, you know, if they should have at least checked that just, you know, it would have put my mind at ease. I don't have any pains in my legs or anything like any warm areas, anything that would uh, make me suspicious that I do have a blood clot. Um, but you know, I did ask about the tilt table testing because I knew that was the gold standard for to diagnose POTS. And the physician told me, the cardiologist at the hospital said, well, you know, only like about 60% of doctors don't really believe in this test because um, basically it's POTS is such a labile condition and it's depending on the time, uh, depending on whether you're on or off a beta blocker, it will determine whether you test positive on this test. And so they told me that they were, they were convinced enough with the medical data that they had for me that this is probably what I had. Um, 
but again, you know, it, when it comes to trying to get appropriate treatment um, and just disability, you know, and things of that nature, it's important to, to really pinpoint and nail the 100% exact diagnosis. And they were just like, you know, we know what's wrong with you and we're not going to treat you any differently. Um, however, that was technically a, a little inaccurate, you know, because they told me to increase my salt intake and I'm like, you know, I figured out on my own that I probably should not be taking in more salt because I don't have the type of pots that they initially thought that I had. So are, are, are you taking any kind of blood thinners mm -hmm. over the counter or prescription to see, to see if that makes a difference on, um, on your health? So you're not, uh, okay. No, no, I, it doesn't seem, again, I'm not suspicious that I have blood clots. And so I haven't, I haven't taken anything like that. Um, but I was kind of excited when I got my Mayo Clinic referral because they would do, they would do all of those extra testing that they haven't done for on me so far. Um, you know, I, I still think I need genetic testing, autoimmune marker testing. Yeah. Did they There's, do any kind of immune system testing? Nope. They to see did if it's an immune system issue? Okay. No. Nope. So it, you know, again, and they didn't even do the test where they check for autoantibodies, you know, like that would, that would um, explain, well, it, it, it could explain what's going on in my body if I have autoantibodies that are attacking my healthy cells. And so, um, you know, again, I might not have anything autoimmune or anything underlying, you know, no genetic predispositions. I might not have any of that, but it would be really nice to know. Um, and my type of condition is not even 100% confirmed to be autoimmune. It's the evident, there's a lot of evidence that supports that it could be autoimmune, um, but they don't know. Uh, but again, there's, there's like several things I wrote down, you know, that they did not do on me that I felt like they should have especially for someone that they suspected was having a plausible adverse reaction because, you know, again, they don't really understand, you know, how, like, how it actually happens and why it's happening to some people versus other people, exactly what's going on in the body. I mean, they suspect that you have an inflammatory response, an abnormal immune response, but they don't, they don't know. And so I feel like they should have done these extra tests and they, they didn't you know, so. Okay. It's, it's like, it's like running around the room instead of confronting the elephant in the center. Mm -hmm. Cause they don't, mm -hmm. cause they don't want to, they don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to deal with it, face it. So what are your thoughts on why doctors are, are in such denial that it could be a, the COVID shot that caused this? Cause this seems to be a reoccurring thing that comes up over and over again. It, it really does, you know, and the difference between vaccine reaction and a reaction to any other medication is that if you give your patient Tylenol or some, you know, any other medication and they have an adverse reaction to it, you're not going to give them any more. But when these people, you know, sprout up with an adverse reaction or abnormal symptoms after vaccine inoculation, they seem to be telling people to get more. I even had an NP in the hospital tell me, recommend that I take my second dose. And I was absolutely appalled, you know, and I, and I told her immediately, I was like, do, do you know why I'm here? You know, have you read my medical chart? My symptoms started 24 hours post vaccine. I mean, the chances of this being a spontaneous coincidence is pretty low. Um, and so to even suggest something that could potentially make me worse was not advocating for me at all. Um, 
I even had to practically beg for a vaccine exemption to keep my job so I could, you know, get, because at first I was hoping I could still work, but turns out that wasn't the case. But in order to keep my job and my health insurance and be eligible for short-term disability, I needed a vaccine exemption because I was no way going to get the second dose. And no physician told me not to. It wasn't until I, it wasn't until I started asking questions, you know, which I'd already made up my mind that I wasn't getting it, but I started asking questions like, okay, well, if I get my second dose, could this exacerbate my symptoms and make me worse? And they were like, well, yeah, that's a possibility. And, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I mean, that's all I need to know. I'm not going to get my second dose. Can I get an exemption? You have objective data, especially just my cardiac results alone, you know, that show you I should not get a second dose. And my electrophysiologist didn't want to write it. Even when he acknowledged that he thought this was an adverse reaction from the vaccine, he still didn't want to write it. Why? Do you know why they don't want to write it or have evidence that they acknowledge it? Well, my primary care provider, I initially asked him to write it because he's the one that called me with my cardiac results. He said, I would like to defer this to cardiology because they're going to be primarily treating your case. And so I think it's more appropriate that they write it. Then cardiology said, well, I think it's more appropriate that your primary care provider writes it because he's your primary provider. And I was like, okay, can someone, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it matters who writes it as long as someone writes it, both of you have my medical information. And so I literally bounced back and forth and cardiology at least wrote down on the paperwork they typed out have your primary care provider write you an exemption but they still didn't say we think this is an adverse reaction they just told me that verbally but they wouldn't type it on paper and so I brought that to my PCP and I looked at him and I'm, he got I was like hey you know he said he thinks it's more appropriate that you write it he got angry his face turned red it's like he threw this little mini temper tantrum he called him a coward and I was like, is this, is this really happening right now? Like, what is the big deal? I, I don't, I don't get it, you know, just write my exemption. And finally I looked him in his, in his eyes and I said, are you, are you going to let me lose my job and my health insurance when I'm going through an active workup for a medical crisis? Are you, are you going to allow that to happen just by not writing a simple medical note? And he's like, no, I'm not going to let that happen. So he wrote, you know, he did write an exemption for me and I did get it approved. And I remember being so confused, like what is happening right now? Why, you know, are they threatening their licenses right now? Like, are they, nobody seems to want their name on this. And I was just, I was flabbergasted. And that's when I really, really knew like, as soon as I started having these crazy symptoms after my vaccine, I already had a bad feeling that it was going to be an atrocious experience just because of how I got sick. But it just became more and more of a rude awakening the further my process and my workup went along that nobody wanted to have anything to do with this. And so, you know, I think that it's political. I think that the medical community doesn't have awareness and enough education at all when it comes to vaccine adverse reactions. And I think that there had to have been something sent to them about writing medical exemptions. It's, it was just too suspicious. It didn't make any sense unless they were worried that their license was going to be on the line or get dinged, you know, for writing this exemption for me. Yeah. So you went from being one of the healthcare professionals fully loaded with all the information and 
the same thing to being on the other side. Yes. And, and, and the frustration of being injured and not getting um, really due attention. Now, did you, did you try any other um, alternative, you know, treatments or, you know, strategies? Because you're trying everything you possibly can of the medical. You are running out of time. It's right. not getting better. Right. So you're kind of rocking a hard place. Have you opened yeah. yourself up to an idea of maybe some um, non-invasive alternative treatments to see if any of that will work for you? Well, I've, I've researched a lot and I've come across a lot and it's, there's so many differing opinions and, and research out there as to what I should try. Um, so it's very overwhelming. And I kept waiting for the doctors to help me out. And then like my window, I felt like started closing and, you know, I wasn't really sure people were trying, which people were telling me to try everything, but I, you know, and as I researched, there just wasn't, there wasn't a lot of data on my end as a healthcare professional to like find, you know, what treatments would work for me, like simple therapies and treatments. I'm not deficient in anything. And so taking a bunch of vitamin C and D and B12 and all that stuff didn't seem to be like a, a very viable option for me if I'm, as long as I'm not deficient in those things. And so um, I knew exercising was really, really good for me. Um, I got a- But exercising, but exercising, raises your heart rate. Yes. So I could not so the, do regular exercise, no regular exercise, but because I wasn't able to perform normal daily activities, I was becoming de more debilitated and more deconditioned. Uh, and so I got a recumbent bike. And that's one thing my cardiologist did recommend. He's like, you know, recumbent bike, you're in a more reclined position and you're just working your legs. Um, unfortunately, I could only tolerate that for like a minute you know, because oh, it was just, getting the heart pumping, it was getting my heart pumping too fast. But also I had become so deconditioned that it was going to take me a while to work up, um, you know, to that point where I could where it would be beneficial. So they've actually had to increase my metoprolol in the last few months. And I am feeling it, that did help some. Um, and I haven't had as many adrenaline attacks in the last few weeks, which I've pro that's probably the longest I've gone this whole time without having a bad attack. Cause sometimes mm -hmm. I just have a mild, you know, more mild forms of it. And so my goal is to get back on this bike and start working myself up because I wasn't even able to do that. Um, but have you that tried really like yoga? Have you tried something like not like simple, like yoga or does that, that raise the heart rate too much too? Uh, I've tried like simple yoga, not like the you know, the positions where you're actually having to exert yourself a little bit more because even holding myself up or anything like that, I mean, you know, just taking wet laundry out of the washer and putting it in the dryer can take everything out of me. Mm -hmm. So um, I think, you know, the recumbent bike exercise is going to really help me at least get increase my strength. Mm -hmm. um, but I have been reading that IVIG therapy um, and hyperbaric oxygen therapy uh, some of the vax injured have tried and that has helped them a lot. However, it's not, it's something that's not approved for a COVID-19 vaccine reaction. And so insurance companies aren't going to pay for it. I haven't even had a doctor even refer me or even recommend it or even try to get it for me. Um, but, you know, these are some of the, you know, the therapies and the, you know, that are accepted in the medical world that we do at the hospital 
you know, that I haven't even been offered. And so, you know, therapies such as that are expensive. And again, trying to get insurance to cover them is very, very difficult. And so I just feel like I, there are, you know, options for me, even options that doctors approve of, you know, from a majority perspective, but I'm not even being offered those either. Uh, so it's, it's just been extremely frustrating. You know, I feel like people like me, they should be doing, I mean, of course, like everyone deserves a full medical workup. But what I'm saying is these adverse reactions, because there's so many different things going on in the body, that's just your body's just going haywire. Mm -hmm. It's more important to, you know, to try different therapies and to try, you know, like, and do all these additional tests to rule out, a, you know, just, just to try to piece together the enigma that this is, you know, right. it's, just, it's been really, it's, it's been so frustrating. Are you on disability? Were you able to get disability if you applied for it? So I got short-term disability. That was difficult enough. Um, with, with, with your company, right? With yes, your job. With, yes. Now, outside of the short-term disability timeframe, and then you can no longer work, are you on state disability? Not yet. So I, of course, my doctors initially just kept telling me like, yes, this is incurable, but we think it's going to go away. You should go into remission. One of the cardiologists said, eh, I don't, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what this is going to do. Um, and so I kept, I just had a lot of hope that with time, you know, uh, the longer I went post-vaccine inoculation, you know, the better chance I had of my symptoms improving. And are they so, improving or are they getting worse? Uh, I'm not getting any worse. So okay. when they increase my beta blocker, um, I honestly think that I probably needed more beta blocker before they increased it, meaning that I wasn't getting worse. I just was never on an appropriate dose. Um, so I don't feel like I'm getting any worse. And I have gone, I have gone about two weeks without a really bad adrenaline attack. And that's, again, the longest I think I've gone. And this experience and this illness is a roller coaster. And if I were to get a cold or COVID again or anything else, it could flare me and set me back right where I was in the beginning of all of this. Well, you now have a corporate mobility, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm. So it's, you know, it it's, I'm very hopeful, you know, but again, at the same time, anytime I've, I've had a few good days and I felt like, yay, I feel like I'm getting a little better. I would just tank again. Um, but I've, I'm, I'm, I am hopeful that I'm going to go into remission. I'm going to get better. Um, but the problem is, is that I'm still not in a position where I can work and perform my work duties. And I technically am getting separated from employment. My max uh, short-term disability term is up on March the 20th. And so I will officially lose my healthcare position at the hospital. Um, you know, they haven't really offered me any type of support whatsoever. And so I'm pretty disappointed. And I don't, you know, I've I have a lot of resentment towards them right now, but I'm trying not to, that's not going to be good for my healing process. But, um, you know, again, not much support there. They're just letting me go. I did get short-term disability, of course, but they're now evaluating me for long-term disability through the hospital. Um, so I will not find out whether I'm approved for a few more weeks and I have not applied for social security yet because my condition is, 
For Social Security, it's one of those gray, gray box type of illnesses where they're like, yeah, if you're debilitated enough, you'll get approved, but it is a hellacious process apparently, and my support groups have not offered me a lot of um, positive outlook on getting approved. And so I know I need to go ahead and apply, uh, but I just keep hoping I'm going to get better. I, I don't know really what to do because I don't want to go through fighting with the government for another two, three years to get disability. But I know that if I have to do that, I will. I guess so I just if, if, if you have enough, if you have enough medical to back up your illness that is preventing you from keeping a job, like get to work on time, be able to work the workday, you know, keeping a job, then wouldn't that be sufficient evidence to get approved for social security disability? It, it absolutely should. Um, the issue I'm having is my doctors are all on board that I cannot perform my job duties and mm -hmm. my impairments inhibit me, my ability to work. Mm -hmm. However, none of them have jumped on board with recommending long-term disability for me. And I oh, it, goes, it goes back to that. It goes back to they don't want to put their name on this could lead back to the vaccine injury. That's what potentially. I'm suspicious of um, because I'm like, my medical documentation clearly shows why I can't perform my work duties, why I can't work a regular job, especially my current job that I went to college for. And they're like, well, we can document your impairments, but we can't recommend long-term disability. And they have not been able to give me, well, only my primary care provider is the one that actually told me that in those words. Um, I haven't asked cardiology because they've literally bounced me around to a different physician every time I've been seen there. So it's been so inconsistent. Um, it's, it just makes it that much more difficult to get this documented on paper. When typically when there is lack of integrity in a specific profession or a situation or, you know, whatnot, um, this is the space where uh, law steps in got this inoculation for work mm -hmm. okay shortly afterwards you got injured and you have all this medical records showing the injury with completely zero medical issues before you got that inoculation now you're being basically thrown out in the street thanks for your service as an rt now we don't no longer you you no longer are good for us anymore as an employee you're out on your own um, so there's absolutely zero uh, accountability at all. And the very least they could do is say, yes, she is disabled, even without saying it's because of, or it may be because of a link to the vaccine, but just to say, based on, on the paperwork, she is too disabled that she cannot keep and hold a job, period. That should be enough uh, without tying a link per se, to the COVID inoculation that the hospital right. could at the very least do for you considering what was caused to you because of your job's requirement. Exactly. And even my husband said the same thing. He said, well, you don't, they don't need a causal link to, a, the, to the vaccine to determine that you're too disabled to work, regardless mm -hmm. of what caused this, mm -hmm. you're too disabled to work. Right. You know, and so I just feel like because of why I'm sick, 
it has made it that much more difficult for me. But I do also understand from my support groups that people with these disabilities and my condition in general from and from a viral infection, for example, they also struggle, you know, with disability type of issues as well. But I just, you know, I'm not expecting someone to roll out the red carpet and give me millions of dollars or anything, but I just, I just want to pay my bills and I feel like I gave my all to healthcare and my patients and this organization just for them to slam the door in my face after I'm pretty sure that the reason why I'm sick is because of something that they mandated me to take to keep my job to begin with. And for the same thing that I took to keep my job also ended my healthcare career, you know, and they're just like, sorry, you know, and that's you're damn if you do and you're damned if you don't. Yes. So uh, back to back to that argument. Um, well, I, I do not judge. I just want to understand the thought process that led you to what you're living through and, and what you're living through can help other people who are living through similar symptoms. So let me ask you this, because this comes up often. So um, now that you're potentially vaccine injured, what do you say to people, now that you're on the other side of it, what do you say to people who say things such as, do your part? You don't want to get COVID and give it to others. Don't be selfish. Your medical freedoms do not outweigh our safety. Uh, Aversive reactions are really rare, so just go get vaccinated. Uh, you're not a doctor. This is the best one. You're not a doctor and you're not educated enough about vaccines to talk about the safety of the COVID shot. So these are the common ones that people typically say. Or the, the newest one is, I worry about the, the children who are five and under, and that's why you should get it. What do you say to all these these commentators? Well, I want to say, first of all, it doesn't feel very rare if it happens to you. Um you know, and if I was a doctor and I was speaking out about this, I would probably also get called names and called a liar and called a bad doctor too, you know, so um, I do feel like I'm educated enough to speak, you know, on it, you know, at a, at a you know, to a certain level, um, because I do understand data interpretation and my own personal experience has taught me a lot. And I've, always learn that experience can really open your eyes to, you know, things that no matter how much education you have, you don't understand unless you've actually lived it. Um, to people who say, you know, we need to protect, protect, you know, the, the younger kids, I completely, you know, understand that perspective. Um, however, you know, those, those people are super, super low risk. And so, you know, you're saying, oh, well, vaccines, vaccine reactions are so rare. Well, so is a kid under five getting really sick from COVID. Um, also, by calling people selfish is not fair at all, given the fact that data has now shown that, you know, you can transmit the virus with the same viral load, regardless of how many vaccines you've had. And so that argument to me has become pretty invalid at this point. Um, and, you know, the, the selfish part, um, you know, it's funny that people call people selfish because they don't understand, you know, what people like me have gone through and will continue to have to go through. I mean, we've, we're not getting, we're not getting adequate, you know, the adequate care that we need. We're being silenced. We're being shut out. We're being told that we're liars. We're not being taken seriously. And, you know, they call, 
they call people selfish that aren't vaccinated, however, and they tell them, you know, do your societal duty and take one for the team. Um, but unfortunately, what a lot of people don't know is that when you take one for the team and something goes wrong, those team members are going to be nowhere to be found. No one is going to have your back. No one is going to even want to acknowledge that you're sick from the vaccine. And so you can call people selfish all you want, but you will quickly learn if this were to happen to you that all those people calling you selfish and telling you to do your duty, none of them are going to be there to help you when you get really sick. And it's just very frustrating, um, you know, because I wouldn't even be speaking out like this if I felt like this was being handled appropriately. I mean, our health agencies have ignored my emails, Pfizer, FDA, Department of Health and Human Services. Theirs literally just got back to me like two weeks ago. I've, I've had to file three reports now, and they just sent me an email asking about my 60-day follow-up. And I'm like, 60-day follow-up? I'm like, my first report was filed six over six months ago. Um, Do you keep a copy just in case you have to repeat, you know, submission so you don't have to rewrite yes. everything over again? Okay, yes. good. Yes. Um, but, you know, again, where there is risk, there should be a choice. And if you expect people to go out here and take one for the team, especially young, healthy people that are so low risk of severe disease from COVID, then, you know, you need to make sure that there's accountability and there's liability somewhere and that the, the sick people like me aren't going to have to be worried about whether they can pay their mortgage next month, whether they can put groceries in the house next month. You know, I mean, I went from an 830 credit score thousands of dollars in my savings account and no debt whatsoever besides for my house and my car to the most debt I've ever been in in my entire life and nobody's responsible for any of this you know and so you know these people that are calling the unvaccinated selfish and and whatnot I mean then you take take liability then you know so, sign a piece of paper and tell them that you'll cover their health expenses or if anything bad happens to them, you'll take care of them. I mean, otherwise it's not fair to call anyone selfish that doesn't want to put this in their, in their body because at the end of the day, no one's going to take care of you, but you, you know, and, you know, I mean, everybody has the right to whether they want to take this vaccine or not and take that risk that they're calling so extremely rare. Right, right. I have a last question for you. The last question for you is you got married in 2020. Now your marriage vows of commitment are being challenged by your health issues, you know, for the richer or poor sickness and in health. How has your marriage changed? Wow. Well, um, again, we were only 10 months into our marriage when I got sick and, um, you know, I felt a lot of guilt, you know, when, when I caved and got the vaccine, you know, because it did make me sick and because it put my husband in a very difficult position. He had just started a new small business um, about two months before I got sick. And so, you know, he was, everything was going fine. And then I got sick and he pretty much fell off the wagon with the business. I wasn't able to help him. He wasn't able to keep up because he was trying to take care of me. Um, you know, in the beginning of this, I was so sick and I was so symptomatic. I was scared to go to sleep at night because I was scared I wasn't going to wake up. I mean, it was, you know, and I was so symptomatic. He was scared to leave me by myself. And so, 
we quickly got behind with the small business. He started having to work overtime to try to catch back up. He was, I mean, he was losing sleep, you know, just trying to get everything done and try to bring income into the home because unfortunately I made more money, you know, than he did, you know, uh, initially. And so, and, and, you know, and we, you know, once I lost my income and I was getting this, just a certain percentage being out of work, it just, you know, it, it, it stressed him out. It stressed me out. I was overly emotional. I was crying and apologizing that I, you know, that this happened to me and that I was so sorry that he had to deal with this now. And, you know, and he reminded me that, you know, he loved me and it didn't matter what happened. He was still going to support me and still be there for me that he reminded me that it wasn't my fault. Um, you know, and he has supported me and he has, gone above and beyond to, you know, help me advocate for the vaccine injured. Um, you know, when I wanted to go to a vaccine injury rally in DC, I couldn't go by myself. So, you know, he had to take me to that. He has to take me to most of my doctor's appointments. And all of this interferes with him trying to bring income into the household. Um, so it's just been, it's been excruciating. Um, and it has stressed out the both of us, you know, I've been so upset about everything and I've, you know, he's been telling me that, you know, maybe I should just take a break from trying to advocate because I'm, you know, it, it's just a lot. It's a lot, you know, just me researching all the time, trying to talk to other vaccine injured and give them advice. And I mean, I've been meeting with politician reps. I've been emailing everybody I can think of to try to get funding for us and just to get us help and just to spread awareness. And, you know, and, and none of that's bringing in any money. You know, and so, and he knows that I can't work my normal job and I can't work period right now. Um, but it's, it's been really hard on him. It really has. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it and pretend like, oh yeah, everything's perfect, you know, but at the end of the day, he has shown me that he meant those wedding vows. And if it wasn't for him, I don't know what I would do. I don't know where I would be right now. Um, some of the vaccine injured are just as sick as me, if not even sicker, and they don't have a significant other living under their same roof. And so I think about those people and I realize how blessed I actually am and how far I've actually come, you know, because I am feeling a little bit better the last few weeks. And, you know, I've been doing different. I did seek out chiropractic neurologist and a sound and vibration therapist. I mean, I have been trying so hard and try, I want to try every therapy there is that I have access to. Um, and the, one of the therapists offered her services for free and that was amazing. Um, but my primary goal is to get better, you know, so he doesn't have to work so hard. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really rough there for a while, you know, because, and it still is, you know, but I was so overly emotional and, you know, I didn't know how to control my emotions and he had to deal with all of that on top of everything else, you know, and so it's, it's been rough, but I will say that I am so fortunate to have him and I don't think he's going anywhere, even though, you know, some days I'm just like, do you just want to run away? If you just want to run away, just tell me. And he's like, no, babe, I would never, I would never do that. I would never do that to you. He's like, you're going to get better one day. We're going to get through this. He just, he has high hopes like I do that we're going to come out on the other side of this and everything's going to be okay. And it'll make our marriage even stronger, you know, especially yeah. knowing, 
you know, being this young and already going through such a significant illness with him and, and realizing how much he's, you know, been willing to support me and give up everything to take care of me has been such a big deal. So, Mm. and he got vaccinated with you as well, right? He did not. He did did not. not. Oh, okay. No, he's unvaccinated. Um, He's not against vaccines by any means, but he was not, he wasn't excited about the big push, um, how forceful the government was. The mandates. With the mandates. Um, That really rubbed him the wrong way as it rubbed me the wrong way. Um, In fact, I was encouraging people in the beginning, you know, to get it, do your research. If you're high risk, especially, you don't want to spread this to people. You don't want to have this. And, you know, and then as more time went on, I was kind of starting to shift a little bit. I never agreed with mandates. But when they started really, really pushing this and telling us natural immunity doesn't count and all of these crazy things that didn't make sense to me, you know, it, it really rubbed me the wrong way too. And especially now that I've, I don't think he'd be vaccinated right now anyway, even if this hadn't happened to me, honestly. Um, But especially after what happened to me and after he's had to experience my journey and how you know, none of these people care what happened to me. He definitely wants no parts of it. So, right. Well, it's hard enough to watch the person that you love suffer so much. And for the the other side of the story, um, as well is their caretakers, the, 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 the psychological um, impact that being your caregiver has on them it takes a, a personal toll you may not see it but they are crying inside and they're crying in, in in a separate room it's hard to watch the people you love suffer I can't say that more more and it takes so much love to be there for you and help you while they're witnessing your suffering so you know Amy um thank you for being so brave to fight through the heavy censorship and tell your experience and tell your husband's experience as well. And thank you kindly to our listeners for listening to another insightful conversation here at CVAR. Until next time, be well, blessings, and God bless you all. We hope you enjoyed this episode of CVAR where vaccine injured share resources and hope without censorship. For more information about today's guest, please go to the show description. The views expressed are for information purposes, but do not replace any medical or legal advice. Please subscribe for more interviews. Blessings.